The song we had just been singing says, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's what we want to talk about is the ministry of reconciliation and the peace that God promises to those who will come to Christ. You know, the thing Satan would love to do and the thing that he has done generation after generation to disrupt gospel ministry in a culture is to create the illusion that peace between men and peace between cultures is all that men need to succeed. In other words, human peace, superficial peace, the absence of war, the absence of starvation, the absence of human problems, the absence of poverty, the eradication of human suffering, all of those things we would long for, of course, because we're human. But what Satan does is he loves to create an attraction to those kinds of things that are so desperately a part of our fallen condition. He creates an attraction for a superficial kind of solving of those problems. And then within that attraction, he embeds the idea that that is the ultimate goal. Peace between human beings. And you know, he's always done that. I want you to take your Bible and look with me for a moment at the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6. We'll get to Luke in a moment. But in the prophet's words, there was a condition in Jerusalem, in Israel, and with Judah that was of such desperation that the prophet speaks about what they were doing. And in Jeremiah chapter 6, Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, they will thoroughly glean as the vine, the remnant of Israel. Pass your hand again like a grape gatherer over the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. You say, what? How could God's people have no delight in the word of God? Verse 11, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I'm weary with holding it in. Pour it out on the children in the street and on the gathering of young men together. For both husband and wife shall be taken, the aged and the very old. And their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest... Everyone deals falsely. Man, in the religion of Israel, in the religion of Judah, there was a, a false promise being held out. What was it? Verse 14. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. Saying, peace, peace. But there is no Peace. Turn over to chapter 8 and you see the same scathing reproof. Verse 8, how can you say we are wise that the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. 
The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they've rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I'll give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. And they heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people, superficially saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. You see, that's what they were doing. They were promising social help. They were promising that humans would flourish. And if humans could flourish as cultures, if humans could get along with one another, and if if they had a religion that somehow uh, covered over the desperate condition of our lives with superficial enough kind of reconciliation, that that'd be enough. You know what they were doing? They were dressing up the people of God Fashioning them in better surface help. Healing the brokenness of my people superficially while the people were on their way to face a creator and a judge with no real reconciliation. That's the tragedy. And our culture does that all the time. Social gospel this, eradicate poverty here, get rid of human suffering here, have everybody get along, dumb everything down to the simplest, most irreducible minimums of talk about religion, and as long as we can get along, there won't be any discussion of any of the definitive issues of the gospel. Especially at Christmas time, make everyone happy. Put enough Santa Clauses and Jesuses together on the front lawn. And everyone is saying, even in the churches, peace, peace. Listen, unless, unless you face the Prince of Peace head on, on his terms, there is no peace. What did Paul say when he went into the culture of Greece? He said, look, to the Corinthians, I came to you. I did not want you to have your profession of faith rest on the strength of my clever communication to attract you to it. So I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. I'm not going to tell you peace when there's no peace in your heart with God. Turn to Luke chapter 2. And let's see what the first evangelists from heaven said. The first evangelists with the message after the birth of Christ were angels. In Luke chapter 2, we saw last time that the baby had arrived. Jesus quietly arrived there in Bethlehem. And Mary and Joseph were there and verse 7 says she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in the feed trough because there was no room for them in the inn. The population had swelled because of the census we saw last time. And then Luke turns the narrative to another announcement, another visitation. We saw the Savior quietly arrives in verses 1 to 7, and now we come to the shepherds who are frightfully visited in the middle of the night. Verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Very familiar text. 
Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they'd heard and seen, just as had been told them. Peace. Peace is the message. A Savior, born for you, and it is given by angels This is another routine night for the shepherds in the same region. simply refers to the hillside area around Bethlehem. We don't really know whether it was fairly close to where Mary and Joseph are or across town. Uh, When the angel, by the way, announces the birth in verse 11, he does say, for today in the city of David. He doesn't say today in this city. So that may indicate that they were quite a ways on the outskirts of Bethlehem. Notice verse 8 also indicates that they weren't within Bethlehem proper because they had to travel straight to Bethlehem when they had heard the news. So they are shepherds and they are keepers of the flock. Staying out in the fields, by the way, is how they would do it. They would put them under a bit of a cover and at night they would put them in the sheepfold for protection. But it was open air shepherding. Literally, the phrase reads, keeping the watch of the night. Not keeping watch over their flocks by night necessarily, but keeping the watch of the night. This was the overnight shift of those that would keep a watch on the flock. And so a small fire would be built and and they would huddle around it and they would watch the flock and there would be long, quiet hours in the night, probably an awful lot of uh, making of conversation, much like we would if we worked a night shift. Um, And uh, probably a lot of stargazing in the quiet hours. These guys probably spent hours trying to occupy their minds. And history tells us, by the way, that they had to stick together as a a group of people because shepherds were not a very well-liked class of people by this time. In fact, uh, while shepherding was the main sort of um, uh, most lucrative business that you would have even back in ancient Israel and even in Abraham's clan, as we have seen in our study of Genesis on Sunday nights, as, uh, as produce and crops began to become the economic base, uh, shepherding uh, became uh, that which we, you would give to the slave 
uh, market of your people. In other words, you'd have the lowest class of hired servants doing the shepherding. They would watch over the flocks of wealthy folks, uh, or you would be like these were in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. You'd be watching over the temple sacrifice flock. In other words, people had temple sacrifices. They were sold to the market or they belonged to someone who would sell them to the market. And so basically you were slave labor for either the wealthy or these markets that would have these temple sacrifices. The strata of society uh, with regard to shepherds in ancient cultures was not very well liked by this time. And even in ancient times, it says uh, in the Old Testament that Egypt hated this lot of people. Uh, shepherds in Egypt were treated very, very poorly according to what history tells us. And so this would have been um, slave labor. This would have been guys that had to huddle together. This would have been part of the underground. Uh, They were known to be filled with uh, thievery and treachery as a subculture, the shepherd culture. And, uh, And so this was sort of the underbelly a bit and on the outskirts and kept on the outside. These men probably would have been under the rabbinic ban. There was a formal ban by the rabbis that said these shepherds who were slave labor watching over temporal sacrifices could not come, even if they happened to be religious, and take part in the temple sacrifices. So that gives you a bit of an idea of, uh, of even how the religious establishment viewed the, the subculture of shepherding. But it's also interesting to note that these men might have been notable exceptions to the worst of their, of their trade and, and their subculture. We know that because of the way that they react to the news. Notice the end of verse 15. Uh, they say, we need to see these things which the Lord has made known to us. Almost as if to anticipate that they had thought about the anticipation of the Jewish Messiah, that they maybe knew of the story and maybe even had some softness in their heart toward it. But verse 20 is interesting. After this whole event, they go back glorifying and praising God for all that they'd seen and heard, just as it had been told them. There was, after the event, of course, a softness. We we don't know if they were soft ahead of time, but it seems like there might be a, a message here that they were already somewhat tenderized. Even though we know God was already moving upon their heart, otherwise they couldn't glorify Him as God worshippers. So here you have these worldly night watchmen, and they are visited in a shocking way, in an otherwise routine night of watching these sheep. And they have a very unroutine encounter, verse 9. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and look at this, the glory of the Lord shone around them. By the way, we don't know why Luke doesn't tell us the angel's name. He says angel of the Lord. He'd already mentioned in the other announcement narratives that Gabriel had come. Maybe he merely assumed that we would make the connection. We can't be sure who this is. We just know that it is an angel sent from God. It may be Gabriel. We're just not told. Notice also in verse 9, it says suddenly. And you just need to know that's, that's actually not emphasized in the original text, but the translators put it in because of this verb to approach or suddenly stood before them. It is the word for to to come close, to approach and come close. You might translate it this way. The angel of the Lord came right up to them. So in the night watch, there they are looking at the starry skies. It's quiet and the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord came right up to them. 
And so in the stillness of that moment, you can bet now, all of a sudden, adrenaline is pumping. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. We may not know if this is Gabriel, but we do know that it's an angel of the Lord and his pure and holy character is not veiled and it is accompanied by the glory of the Lord shining around them. Paralampo, it is the word that Paul will use in the book of Acts, which Luke wrote when Paul is in front of King Agrippa and he's talking about his own conversion, which is recorded in Acts 9, and he was knocked to the ground by a great light, brighter than the sun. Now, I can't even fathom that. A light brighter than the sun. You can't stare at the sun. But a light brighter than the sun knocked Paul to the ground, and he describes it using the same word. So what you have here is an expression of the character, the holiness, the purity of God that is shining in that field around these shepherds in an otherwise what should have been a quiet night. God's glory, by the way, is described as exceeding, in the Old Testament, Exodus 15.11, says, God is and ever shall be exceedingly glorious. Exceedingly glorious. According to Scripture, it is the shining brightness of His perfections. That's how we like to describe it. The shining brightness of His perfections. When, when God's character is given some sort of visibility, it always results in some sort of blazing, some sort of brightness. Here's how Paul would describe it to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16. God dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable. You can't come near it as a sinner. People, people will sometimes say, what is the big deal in Christianity? You're going to be in heaven um, staring at God and praising God for all eternity. What is the big deal? Listen, think about it. God's character is what is the substance of his glory. God's holiness is the substance of his glory. So if, in eternity, you can stare directly into God's holy glory and not be killed, not be eternally destroyed, if you're standing and looking directly into the glory of God, you are fulfilling, sensing, experiencing, you are encountering what you were designed to do as his creature. To stare into his face and to feel what that's like and know what's that, what that's like. To have his holiness permeate your life because you can stare into him and his perfections and not be destroyed. That is the goal of creation. For God's glory to permeate everything. And one day it will, 1 Corinthians 15 says, when Jesus Christ hands him his whole entire redeemed people back to God the Father so that his glory fills all in all. When we go to heaven and stare directly into the glory of Christ, John 17, 24, as Jesus has prayed and requested of his Father. To be holy and stare directly into God's presence is what we're designed to do and to be. And if you think some human experience even compares to that, you're lost. What you have here is the glory of God's unapproachable light shining around this visitor. It was always that way. God's perfections, when it showed up visibly, always was like that. Exodus 24, it was bright and a fiery cloud. Exodus 40, it was a bright cloud. 
God's creative power. So in other words, when he speaks and something came into being in Genesis, it was the reflection of his glory. Powerful things happened. Amazing things happened. Massive energy was moved with a word or a thought. Things we can't even fathom and we try to penetrate space with these telescopes that we've made and God has a glory in all of his universe and he just spoke it into existence. That's what his glory looks like when it comes into creative fruition. Storms and angelic creatures and precious stones and precious metals, miraculous power and trembling and smoke. These are all descriptions in the Old Testament. By the time you get to the ninth chapter of Luke, you see angels with clothes like lightning Flashes of lightning, exceedingly white. That showed up in a field (laughs) outside of Bethlehem. And so the glory split the midnight sky in a very routine night otherwise. And suddenly there was a very unroutine encounter. And then grace unveiled a miraculous sign. Notice verse 9 at the end. They were terribly frightened. We get that. Verse 10. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. For behold. That is an angel saying, listen to this. Listen up. For behold, I bring you good news Of great joy. This is the evangel. This is the gospel. This is the greatest news of all. This is true peace. No superficial peace here. Real, deep peace. And it is great joy, or of the greatest kind of joy, literally in the text. Of the greatest kind of joy. That's the joy of the news. There is no higher kind. Oh, you think poverty eradicated in a temporal world is the greatest joy? No. You think someone having, having had their cancer go away is the greatest joy? No, not even close. It's a wonderful thing. It's a marvelous sign of God's grace and expressed on his fallen world, but it is nothing. This angel says this is the greatest kind of joy. And notice the recipients of it, which shall be for all the people. Now he's first referring to Israel. Born for you in the city of David is a Savior, the Messiah. The Savior has come. And those who were truly waiting for their Messiah would instantly know with the birth of this child, as generations before them had believed, they would instantly know that God keeps His promises. The time comes when He would bring about a ratification of this peace that He promised. And He would give His people a new heart Man, Israel had cranked it out over and over again. And every time they banged up against the law of God and failed, they felt more condemned. They were more condemned. They knew more condemnation. No sacrifice could ever take away what they, the crushing weight of their guilt or the bondage they were in to sin. And there would come one who would one day give them a new heart and free them. That's this good news given first to Israel. Romans 1.16, Paul then says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile nations. 
Of course. And so this coming one brought this good news to recipients. Anyone who would believe. It'll be to all the people. You want to give people a message of peace? This message of peace is offered to people who are in turmoil eternally. They may not know it. We've been bringing friends and neighbors to the concert and they don't know the Lord. Some can handle it and stay for a while. Others leave after a few songs, can't handle it. We've invited the local restaurant people because we see them each week and we've invited the servers, food servers and maitre d's and we don't know how they're going to respond, but we know this. They have no peace, whether they know it or not. They have no peace. They might have a fairly comfortable life, but they're dressed up for hell. They have no peace. This is a wonderful good news. It's for all people who don't have peace with God. And all the people here will see this shining light, as John 1, nine says it. The light comes into the world and enlightens every man. It starts to glow on every part of the creation. And that's, that's exactly what's happened. And here we are 2,000 years after this birth, and the gospel light still continues to explode on, on peoples and cultures and tribes and languages and nations. And the substance of the news is everything. There's a joy in it. There are recipients, but the substance of it is the richest. Verse 11, For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Don't mistake that terminology. This is the center mark of the entire announcement. Who's been born? A Savior. Mary already took up that theme, by the way, in verse 47 of chapter 1, when she said, I now rejoice in God, my Savior. But who is He? He is, the angels say, Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. That's very familiar terminology of the Jewish community. It would become very clear terminology to the Gentile community, not only through what Luke writes here, but the deliberate way Luke writes it. And, you know, I've read so much scholarship that's text critical, you know, the the minutiae that we don't bring into sermons, you can thank us for that. But I have to read that stuff because I want to know what's going on in the the original text and the variants. And text critical scholars argue about this particular wording, Christ the Lord, because they say, well, it doesn't really fit Luke's way of referring to Jesus. And so they think the term was added by a later editor. In chapter 2, verse 26, uh, Luke records there that it says, The Lord's Christ. Remember, Simeon, I have seen the salvation. I've seen the Lord's Christ, and God told me I wouldn't die until I, would, I have seen the Lord's Christ. And so you have a, another order of the words, very particular. But the best manuscript evidence still supports the word order here. So whether it fits Luke's norm or not, this is how he described the Lord, and he describes it in two terms, Christ, or the Anointed One, or the Messiah, and the Lord, the Ruler, the Monarch, the King. And so it's two very specific terms. And Luke is deliberate because he wants the Gentile world to know who this baby is. In the Jewish mindset, they understood. Messiah was anointed for the task of being Three things. 
prophet, priest, and king, right? That was their understanding of the Messiah. So this one, the angel says, born for you today in the city of David is a savior who is Christ, the Messiah. He is then the ultimate priest. So this conjured up the idea of peace. He's the ultimate go-between. You don't have peace with God? He's your go-between, the ultimate mediator. He can mediate peace, which you and I cannot mediate. He can bring about a reconciliation, as Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, the ministry of reconciliation. He can harmonize it. He can bring a holy God together with sinful men. This is shocking news. He's here. You mean we've heard about him? And he's here? And if you were a Jew, you'd want to see that child. Because you were waiting for an ultimate go-between. Yeah, the blood of bulls and goats never did it. You had to repeat it every year. On the Day of Atonement. Jews who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah... Jesus of Nazareth, the one that was killed and rose from the dead, Jews that today don't believe in Jesus the Messiah, still celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the covering. I understand why they're celebrating that, because they're waiting around for a Messiah. They just don't know he's come already, and he's going to come again, but he's already sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And this infant right here is the Christ. He's the ultimate go-between You don't have to repeat the sacrifices as the book of Hebrews says. He's the mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. How can he mediate? How can he be the ultimate priest? Because he was man, he was us, and yet he was a perfect man. And so his priestly work was acceptable to God. His sacrifice was flawless. What a relief. What a relief. I don't have to shed my blood. And I don't have to go through some ritual that, that temporarily purchase the patient, purchases the patience of God for another year till the next celebration and another animal is sacrificed in some system like Israel had to do. Not only that, Messiah was the ultimate king. He was the ultimate priest, but he was also the ultimate king. That's what would have been conjured up by this term Christ. He would be anointed for the task of mediator, and he would be anointed for the task of being the ultimate ruler of God's people. So as Isaiah the prophet said, he has a government that would bring peace. Not superficial peace, but his his government will have a peace that will have no end, Isaiah said. And of his kingdom, there will be peace on earth. Dan said last night at the concert, if you want to know real peace, you'll never know it until you know the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince who is the King of Peace. Government would be righteous, peaceful, and eternally blessed. You know, one day he's going to set up his kingdom in a literal kingdom on the earth and the nations will be coming into his kingdom and bringing all of the glory of God's people in to worship him. And we will all be there as cultures and nations and languages, but we will finally have peace with God. And there will not be, can you even imagine it? There will not be any crime, any evil, any poverty, any starvation, any affliction, any disease, any sin. So we can try to do these superficial social things. And it's, it's, 
It's a normal part of natural human compassion to want to go and minister to people who have needs. We do it all the time. But that's not a reflection of of the heart of the gospel. That's just a reflection of Christian compassion that comes from having the gospel. That's Christian love. Because we... We want to bind up broken-hearted people. We want to lift up the oppressed. We want to take care of orphans and widows. Of course, that is, pagans can do that. Christians have Christ's compassion for seeing people bound up. Here's the difference. That isn't the essence of the gospel. A temporary eradic- eradicating of their human suffering. And yet ministries all over this culture are saying that. And you know what? It's just like ancient Israel. Oh, it's, a, it's peace. It's peace. We're going to help humans flourish. No, you won't. No, you won't. You give them a full stomach before they go to hell. So what? I'm all for meeting their starving needs. But not without the gospel. Not without the ultimate king, the prince of peace, who comes as the Christ. And he would also be anointed for the task of revealing God. He'd be the ultimate prophet. He would give eternal truth. Ultimate truth. Truth that would bring God in the midst of his people where God is fully revealed in Christ. And then he enters your life by the power of his spirit. And your eyes are illumined. And you see the things of God rightly. And you see his word powerfully. And you can understand it. I love that. Luke is... Making no mistake here, the angels, he's recording exactly what they said, Christ the Lord. And he recorded it as exactly as it was intended to be spoken by the, these first divine evangelists. The anointed one and the Lord. What is that? The ruler who has the authority to dispense salvation. So he's the anointed one, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. And he has the ultimate authority. He is Lord. Nobody dispenses salvation but him. Nobody says what his message is but him. Nobody tells you how to get there except him. No one has another method but him. There are no other messiahs. There are no other paths. He alone. It's on his terms. That's what this means. He's the anointed one. And he is the Lord. That's why when you come to Christ, if you want peace in Christ, you come on his terms. You don't say, well, you know, I'm going to invite Jesus into my world, into my heart, into my life. And having invited him there, I'm going to ask him to take it slow and accommodate me. I'm going to ask him to not touch the furniture of my heart and not go into this room or that closet. I'm going to ask him not to invade certain thoughts and secret areas of my mind and heart or my life. I'm going to have what the religious leaders sometimes offer, a peace without all the disruption. He doesn't come on those terms. He comes on his terms. What are his terms? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy, my yoke is light. I'll give you peace. I'll forgive all your sin. Come and turn to me. Turn from self-worship, self-reliance, self and the absorption in a sinful world. Come to me away from that. Turn only to me and I will give you rest, the song said. Rest. Rest. 
for your soul. Notice the evidence of the news. I love this. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. This, this has got to be perplexing to the shepherds. What? He's the Christ? And he's a king? And he's the Messiah who's the ultimate ruler? And did you just say we're going to find him wrapped in strips of everyday clothing and in a food trough? That's right. You're going to find him swaddled in run-of-the-mill Everyday rags and lying in an animal's feeding trough. That's the circumstantial sign, the earthly sign that these things are true. Why? Why was this true? Because he's human and he is divine. So he's a newborn, that proves his humanity. And he's in a back alley stall wrapped up in ordinary cloths put into a feeder so that you would know when you got to town he's the only one. He's the one we're talking about. How many babies do you think were born in a manger that night in a stall? One. It's not a big town. There aren't too many hostels, places to go. Of the few in town, the shepherds probably knew them, networked to some degree. This is perfect. This is perfect earthly proof. Very clear, very specific. And then the heavenly proof is staggering. And suddenly, by the way, that word suddenly is in the text emphatically. So here they are listening with perplexity to what they're going to find in the earthly proof. And God sends a heavenly proof. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Literally, there was with the angel a huge army from heaven. The word for army could be translated, some of your translations say company, multitude. It it is literally the idea of a mass, a huge mass that is seen coming as a huge mass. We don't know if they're floating above the ground, like like some of your movies portray or cards, you know, the angels singing above the ground. We don't know if they walked up in the field like a big army. We don't know if they marched. We We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us any of the details. He just says, a huge army showed up. A massive number, uncountable, of angelic beings just appeared. And there's just literally no way to describe that moment. What is clear is what they're doing and saying. They're praising God. This assumes, by the way, all the elements of singing, all the elements of shouting that you see in the Old Testament. Singing and shouting, singing and shouting. That's all involved in the terminology of praising God. And here was the message. Here was what was being said and sung. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest just means he is worthy of the highest ascribing of glory to his person and his perfections. That's what the angels do. You know, they must have been... I don't know where they, where they get gathered from. They're not omnipresent. Angelic beings are not omnipresent. They are supernatural and they are spirits. They can show up in a visible form and you know, only God knows his purposes for sometimes doing that and sometimes not. But they are, they are uh, supernatural beings, in other words. And uh, they show up. I don't know how he gathered them. I don't know if they were ready. I don't know if they're behind the scenes just waiting. I don't know. I would imagine that around the birth of the Son of God... 
They're just at the throne of grace waiting for a moment to be sent on the errand. Okay, go praise me. Go give praise to those goofy guys on a hillside. It's an exclamation point. And notice, peace. Oh, reconciliation between a holy God who must judge sin. Reconciliation between a holy God and sinful men who cannot reconcile themselves. Notice that phrase, on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. That is, that is the phrase. It's hard to translate, but it, essentially, I'm convinced that what it means is peace among men upon whom he has poured his favor. Not just poured out his common grace in the offer of the gospel, but also his specific grace in the transforming of hearts. This is great news. God has come, listen, not just to offer salvation, but to actually and definitively save sinners. Successfully. Sufficiently. And since we know he's sovereign in such things, this is a reference to his sovereign love that he sets upon sinners. There is no explicable human reason for this outside of his glorious perfections. He just loves to save. He's a saving God. He loves to save. How did he show it? He sent his son. How did he show it? At the cross, crushing his son. How did he show it? He is reconciling to men. That's why Paul said, I have the ministry of reconciliation and it's as as though God is entreating men through me. That's how we ought to view it. We ought to say to men, be reconciled to God. God is telling you that through me. Be at peace with the Holy God. If you took your last breath right now and you're not at peace, that's it. You will never be at peace to die in your sin. Well, our time is gone. The sign is undeniably confirmed. Not only did the Savior quietly arrive and the shepherds were frightfully visited, but the sign is undeniably confirmed. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, this is what happened. The shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then. Uh, maybe they conscripted some, some other guys to take over their shift or whatever, but they took to the, to the path and they went to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They believed it was God, knew it was God, and, and were told not to fear, but, and they weren't even told to go, but they said this, the angel said, this will be a sign to you, you'll find him this way. I mean, the angel knew he was going to go. He knew the shepherds were going to get after it, because God was behind all this. Verse 16, they came in a hurry, of course, and they found their way. Yeah. This was a strange circumstance, a woman in a stall having a baby. And they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby. I mean, can you imagine that moment when they came into the stall and saw the baby in the trough, remembering what they'd just been told? That's him. And the baby, as he lay in the trough, and when they'd seen this, (laughs) uh, Mary and Joseph weren't told, so here's some... Underbelly of society, shepherds showing up. When they'd seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. What does that mean? That means that they kept telling people. All who heard it doesn't mean there's a big crowd at the stall. 
means they kept on telling people. This is Luke's commentary on it. All who heard wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. This is exactly what was happening. They went there, then they went to another place. They went in town, out of town, all the way through, telling people, this is what we just saw, and this is what just happened. And we went to the stall, and that's how we found it. God is here. Christ the Lord is born. Here's the contrasting commentary on Mary. This teenage mother is treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. So more message from God about who her son is. More confirmation. More realization that as she stares into the face of this child, she is staring into the face of her own Savior. Pondering these things. What did the shepherds do? Verse 20. They went back worshiping, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. There is faith. There it is. They had heard the message. They had had it confirmed by God. And they praised God for it. Notice the clause there. Glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. The content of their praise was informed by what they knew to be true. Listen, this is so important. When God reveals it to God's people, when He reveals truth to His people like He does to us in His Holy Word, and you believe it, it results in praise and honor and glory. People who struggle to praise God are lacking in faith. People who get along... Uh, side religion and they learn the terminology but there's no genuine glorifying of God in their life by their lips or their life they don't know the Lord it's a false peace what we're made to know here is the shepherds were not believing in a superficial peace they believed that this would be peace among whom God had favored and he had favored their heart and poured his mercy out on them. And so, as they had been told it, as they'd had it confirmed, as they believed it, God was moving. And so it created in them a heart of true worship. Listen, beloved. I'm thrilled that Christians know what true peace is. When I was converted, I knew that peace all of a sudden. I'd created enough superficial peace in my life because I grew up with religion. Some of you, the same. And the, the world wants to tell you about political peace and I'm all for laws that make peace among men. I'm thankful God gave us governments and laws to punish evildoers and uphold righteousness. I, I, I'm so thankful. In the common grace of God, I'm thankful for Peace in a family where relationships aren't always destroyed. I'm thankful for the compassion of humanity to bind up the brokenhearted and the diseased and create medicine that helps. And I love all of that. But I love it for a different reason than someone who doesn't know Christ, the Prince of Peace. I love it because it's a reflection of God. But I'll tell you this, I am so concerned that we attach religion to it and we tell people, oh, peace. When in their heart there is no peace. You can say, find peace in Christ. But don't tell people they already have peace. When all they've held on to is some superficial version of it. Because you will be at some point 
chastened by God, if not found to be an unbeliever and judged by him, offering men something that cannot save them. Offer them the true Prince of Peace, the real mediator between God and men, the one who can truly reconcile. And then, here's your simple gospel presentation. Be reconciled to God through the real mediator, Christ, a Savior born for you. Father, thank you for the evangelists from heaven. Thank you for their clarity, for... That moment, thank you for the conversion of these shepherds. Thank you for your favor upon their hearts. Thank you that the message was of reconciliation among men. Lord, there would be no harmony between darkness and light. And so therefore there could be no relationship of reconciliation between sinners and you are beloved and holy God. But you ran to us with mercy and love and peace in your son. And so often the church offers not the Jesus of the Bible, but some superficial Jesus a frat boy, a, a club member, some sort of social gospel guru, some mystic, some earthly martyr for some political cause. But that's a that's a hypocritical message that cries peace when there is no peace. There's only peace on your terms. So soften hearts this festive season. Soften our hearts once again to this truth and refresh us in it. Never to give out a superficial peace to anyone. Lord, we plead with you for souls even tonight in the concert. For your own glory's sake, may we glorify you and praise you tonight with genuine hearts. In the wonderful name of our Prince of Peace, we pray. Amen.